Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. This morning, I am off to an event run by Bright Blue. They are a think tank which prides themselves on analysis for liberal conservatism. Uh, they cover a whole wide range of different issues. Today, we'll, we'll be talking about community ownership of energy and the role it has to play in, in net zero. So um, I'm going to be speaking alongside some real experts on the topic who've been uh, delivering and financing projects right across the UK alongside representatives from Scottish Parliament, but also civil servants from BASE, the uh, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So wish me luck, let you know how we get on, and another day of COP awaits. For those of you who don't know us, Bright Blue, we're an independent think tank for liberal conservatism. Our mission is to defend and improve liberal society. So really, the questions around community energy, which we want to ask are what role can community energy play in the transition to a low carbon smart energy system? Why should the future of energy be local? What policies and interventions are needed from government to support the scaling up of community projects across the UK? And how can community energy be feasible without financial support from government? Right, folks, another set of events done we're back from bright blue uh really interesting talk spoke to some real experts on the topic one one uh particular organization i thought was was fascinating were essentially buying up um private energy projects solar they bought up about 30 megawatts and spent millions of pounds on on getting this uh getting this funding together and the idea was to then uh, repackage these two communities and get them get them sold uh sold in a way that the communities could then um could then do something with them they would govern them they would benefit from them um but it, yeah really fascinating organizations it's very clear from all the research, particularly over the last uh, couple of weeks, that there is real public concern now across generations, across income groups, um, around the climate and nature crisis. 
But it's also really clear that we need, they, that the public needs support to translate that concern into concerted action. We've heard that in, in various different ways. And community energy businesses and community businesses more broadly, I think are superbly well-placed as Matthew has already really said, um, to do that and to support people to make that transition. I think they have a real competitive advantage in terms of being locally rooted, which means they tend to understand really deeply the communities that they're working with, how to engage them, how to how to motivate them. So that was um, that was an organisation called Power to Change, um, and also heard from another organisation called Repowering London, which are uh, which are delivering these projects themselves. We're not only about generation, we're also about tackling fuel poverty. As I mentioned, we're working with the most vulnerable in the community. So the income from some of these projects have actually helped those most vulnerable. And lastly, I wanted to share uh, our Brixton Energy Corps who have been generating for the last 10 years. You know, they, they've put money aside uh, to fund fuel emergency vouchers for local residents. They identified what was the need in their community and they quickly shifted and mobilized that money to enable that to happen. And at Repairing, we have a locally rooted champion-based model. So uh, we've got paid uh, champions in the community who live locally, are connected locally, and are really able to make sure that our services reach those who are generally not heard or communicated with. And most importantly, what we do is also involve our young in the community. So this is intergenerational aspect, and we've delivered training programs for young people so that we are able to recruit and identify that diverse talent pool, which is so needed as we know the green sector is not diverse at all. <laughs> so there's lots of value that we, we provide as community energy. Yeah, really, really interesting. Heard also from uh, MSP, who was Brian Whittle, who is uh, Shadow Minister for Environment, Biodiversity and Land Reform for the Scottish Conservatives. For, for me, it's government's responsibility to create the environment that allows uh, industry, uh, communities and individuals to make choice. It, allow, it, it gives them a, a route into that. Governments should be much more uh, able to seed fund projects. Um, I think we need pl so planning needs to be simplified and speeding up the planning application process. I, I was hearing the other day that to do offshore wind, the new offshore wind can take up to a decade. That's too. That, that is just too long. Probably a slightly different view about the role that uh, community energy might play and the ownership of land. But what was really heartening to hear is from right across the political divide from parties that maybe haven't traditionally been seen to be uh, in great support for community energy. And we could see that from the current Conservative government from UK is that uh, certainly Brian's view is that it has an important role to play in net zero and a just transition. So we're really happy to hear that. Uh, after that, I rushed off to Govan. Those of you who don't know Glasgow, this is sort of west of the centre, just on the Clyde there used to be known very much for the shipbuilding and um, I was lucky enough to be invited to speak on a community radio station called Sunny G which was brilliant invited by Martin Avila so thank you Martin really enjoyed that you grew up in Glasgow Martin are you a recent arrival How no you? Yeah. you might be able to decipher from my uh, my accent I'm not from from uh, Scotland not from Glasgow we've been here the last five years so okay. I'm not uh, from northwest of England not too far from Manchester okay. and often have the conversations. There's, there's a lot of good parallels between Manchester and Glasgow. A lot of, yeah, for sure. a lot of friendly folks, really good fun cities. Yeah, yeah, and two cracking football teams as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
that's not the green zone, blue zone debate that, <laughs> we'll, be having, <laughs> that we'll be having today. You know, I said on Friday night, if anybody was listening, uh, I'm not sure if the goodies are in the green zone or the blue zone, you know, like, yeah. uh, but we'll just leave that in Sunday Oven. Uh, we want to bring everybody on board with us. And we got to speak a little bit more about what COP might mean for Glasgow, what some of the legacy might be, particularly around the community energy ownership. And we were joined by um, representative uh, from Gem Zero, uh, which is a, an advocacy group which pushes for net zero in Germany. So it's really interesting to hear about their perspectives on how they're trying to achieve net zero. So actually, what was quite interesting is they're tackling many of the same issues, retrofit of homes, uh, difficulties in terms of regulation to try and get community and local energy projects through. The complicated thing is it all needs to happen at the same time. So you can't succeed in total in terms of impact, but also in terms of having... fair policies uh, if you only do one thing at the same time. So what you need to do is you need to introduce a clear CO2 pricing scheme in the best case at the European level. But at the same time, you need uh, clear uh, forms of social compensation where it's getting too expensive. Yeah, I was kind of expecting to hear a very different perspective. You know, it's it's another sort of post-industrial nation, wealthy nation with a rich, you know, uh, history tackling the same issues. In the end, I think the power is worth the people. Martin saying make some noise yeah thanks (laughs) Thanks very much for making some noise thanks very much for your time Julian thank you so much thank you very much for joining us Matt see you all soon Sunny Govan listeners Uh, it's been great thank you very much Right, so I have finally found Becky in the blue zone. She's she's here. She is real. Uh, we're we're sat together just having a cup of tea, cup of coffee, recharging our phones. Um, so Becky, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so excited to finally see you. I can't believe it's taken us this long. But uh, actually enjoying today, I think, the most out of the days that I've been in either the blue or green zone. Yeah. And I think for me, that's because it's actually all about local action and action in cities and so far more the sort of stuff that i am deeply passionate about so so it's it's built environment cities day essentially so we've we've sat through through all sorts and maybe before we kind of get stuck into that um was it yesterday or the day before you finished your ride? Yes, it was the Tuesday. Tuesday we finished the ride. Oh, absolutely amazing. And obviously an entire episode of the pod about that. So listen yeah. to my uh, painful journey from uh, Edinburgh to Glasgow via lots of other places. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I've already listened to it. It's fantastic. And uh, so hopefully the weather got a little bit better. For, I, I was thinking of you the first day, which was torrential. Yeah. yeah, well, and we had beautiful blue skies when we actually arrived at COP. So uh, I'll trade the hideous rain on the previous days for that those blue skies because coming into the venue with like water streaming down my face like it had been on the previous days would definitely not have been a good look so this was much much nicer well and congrats because it was some ride and obviously you've got a poorly ankle as well so it's pretty amazing you you managed to even do it at all so you know and not being a cyclist as well (laughs) and that as well yeah you had had most things against you yeah you triumphed um so okay so so we yeah i think this is possibly our last day in the blue zone so we're trying to make the most of it we've been sitting through um few different events this morning so you were in the science pavilion is that the met office pavilion it is yeah so i was in there um at a fantastic event which launched the summary report for urban policymakers of the ipcc sixth assessment report so the ipcc is the intergovernmental panel on climate change matt's going to correct me if i got that wrong 
Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Is that what you said? That is what I said. (laughs) Five stars for me. (laughs) Um, And fundamentally, this was about bringing together different aspects of that IPCC report, but recognising that cities and regions are absolutely fundamental to delivering some of um, the actions that need to address uh, mitigation and adaptation solutions. And so looking at how you can translate the science into something meaningful for local leaders. So absolutely brilliant. Okay, so this was a a cross-work package. So For those who aren't quite sure what the IPCC do, they essentially collate and also critique the evidence base uh, on climate change across three streams. Uh, The first is around climate science, the second is around mitigation, and the third is around adaptation. So they were dealing with these three themes, Mm -hmm. the climate science around how climate change is um, potentially going to affect cities or the built environment, and then also questions about how we mitigate climate change in the cities, but but how we also make changes to live with, with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the discussions were fabulous, but I'll I'll summarise. I think for me, there were three key areas of discussion that are absolutely critical. And the first was um, on the need for systems change. And I think sort of getting at this cross-work package aspect really pulls that in. And, and, you know, they were talking about that we need to see these kind of simultaneous changes in our energy systems, in our industrial systems, in our land and ocean ecosystems, and in our urban and infrastructure systems. And we can't do these separately. We've got to do them all together because they're all interconnected. And we need to be implementing this across the sector and across different scales from very local to national to international. And what that means is that we need to engage a diverse set of stakeholders and we need to bring together adaptation and mitigation measures, which are often right. considered separate. So I want to pick, pick that up because I've sat through various talks over the last few days, last couple of weeks, and I find that fascinating. There are certain measures which can do t- two things at once. So I maybe bring in two examples. One would be... Um, the uh, planting of trees in cities where they can offer shade, uh, they can soak up water in case of yeah. flooding, but also they can sequester carbon. And the other that I hear a lot of is solar panels where these can generate low carbon electricity, but also offer shade, uh, particularly relevant in the sub-Saharan uh, uh, Africa and, and other countries along that equatorial belt. Any others that you kind of picked up on or, or what? What? how else should we be thinking? Yeah, so they didn't give like specific examples of bringing mitigation and adaptation together. It was more the focus on looking at how um, urban centres are not only the origin of like lots of different emissions, but there are lots of different opportunities for action with a huge risk of locking if we get it wrong because urban centres are growing so fast. There's a real urgency to act. But what we need to do is think about the mitigation and adaptation potentials and consequences of of actions that can be taken across those different areas. Um, But for me, that concept actually just set up the rest of the discussion. The other two points that came out of the the session are what excited me even more. The second point, I guess, then was around partnerships, laying out that actually we have a real challenge if we're trying to upscale ambition, you know, across 200 countries, over 5,000 places and, you know, into the tens and hundreds of thousands of organisations that are going to be working on this. And that requires new forms of partnerships. So we need to go beyond just kind of private and public partnerships. One example that was given was looking at um, something called P4. So looking at all the four Ps, people, planet, place and performance. So really focusing on those four areas to create um, kind of partnerships amongst a diversity of stakeholders 
that work across these things um, underpinned by trust because you need the trust when you're bringing that many uh, different partners together to deliver on people, planet, place and performance. Wow. So, so uh, yeah, a lot to absorb. And this was obviously looking way beyond the UK. So I, I, I sat in on, a, on, on an event actually right next door. We're probably separated by all, all but about <laughs> yeah. three inches of ply, uh, plywood. Um, so I was in the, the UK pavilion or the Great Britain mm-hmm. and uh, Northern Ireland pavilion. Not quite sure why they've split it up, but there you go. I think it's because <laughs> they can get the word great in at the beginning and they've put that in, in, uh, in capitals. Um, but the discussion, I think, maps onto this, but it had a much more kind of UK specific focus. Yeah. Um, and this was around whole life carbon roadmap for the built environment. Brilliant. A... So- a a mouthful it is a mouthful so what did you learn about the whole life roadmap for built environment which is a massive issue and let's be honest ties in with kind of our urban centers so you know the media at the moment are covering boilers versus heat pumps and everything in between okay but (laughs) but that's your kind of operational emissions Mm -hmm. there's actually a huge amount of embodied emissions in your building so that the concrete how it's being uh, constructed. Also, surprisingly, a lot of the emissions that we don't account for, maybe the, the appliances, mm-hmm. the fixtures and the fittings. So roughly 50% of the building sector emissions uh, are operational, give or take. Wow. The rest are embodied. That is massive. And I hadn't, hadn't realised that. That is absolutely... And, and presumably, you know, are we, are we budgeting that when we're looking at emissions? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I think the answer was yes, but maybe we could be a bit more specific and we could disaggregate those emissions much more clearly. The success really... So let's begin with the good news. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that they, they offered you know, a picture of what emissions in the building sector you know, look like over the last 10, 20 years. And, and over the last five or 10 years, we've actually seen a relatively big drop in yeah. emissions. But this has mostly been operational mm. and you can probably guess why. Is it been the decarbonisation yep. of the electricity grid? And we can still go further. You know, we're looking at 100% um, renewable power in the UK mm. on, the, on the grid by 2035. But a lot more to do. And yeah. so how do we get those operational embodied emissions down? Or some interesting examples, some of which we've probably covered before. Mm. Um, a national retrofit strategy would be a good yep. start, <laughs> which yes. I don't think we have. Um, but a couple of more specific ones, things about when we, we come to um, sell our, our homes. So EPC standards at the point of sale. So your house has to be yep. a particular standard. Also variable stamp duty rates. Interesting. But the thing that I'd like to to bring up more than anything else was that they said we basically don't measure our energy consumption or measure our emissions very well we have epcs Mm -hmm. but these are projected the estimated emissions so when you go into your home or go into work Mm -hmm. or you drop the kids off at school you'll see an epc on the inside well not on homes but in public buildings you have to see an epc that's estimated what we need to do is measure and then be mandated di- to disclose this actual energy concept. And actually, we know that there's a massive performance gap, what's often referred to as the performance gap between projected emissions and measured emissions, yeah. or often it's framed as projected energy demand and measured energy demand. So we know exactly. it exists. Well, how, how many of us, you know, have bought a car or in the last few years or, you know, if you're lucky enough to have an EV and if you're not, you know, petrol or diesel, and you, it says miles per gallon or, oh. or miles per... <laughs> You know, kilowatt hour how many of us actually reach that right yeah, and that's because yeah. of how we're driving how we're how so the equivalent is true in the building yeah and actually i want to pick up on this because i think that uh, talking about retrofit 
is something really, really relevant and important, not just in terms of the embodied carbon emissions and the opportunities to tackle that, but also about linking that through to, um, to the growth of new jobs and the development of the skills pipeline. And so in, in that session that I was in, in the science pavilion, we picked up on the topic of just transition and that in developed countries like the UK, there is a huge opportunity for retrofit markets. In fact, Jim Ski picked up on this, reflecting on um, the work of the Scottish Just Transition Commission. What he shared was that the skills to deliver a lot of this will not sit in big industry. And those, those jobs will instead probably sit in SMEs, small and medium enterprises, and for me, when I start to think about that, that well, first of all, if you're in a kind of a huge uh, industry um, employment, unionized, you know, that's very different to say working in an SME where you might have less certainty about what the future looks like, what your career pathway looks like. So real challenges, I think, around thinking about, you know, labor um, shifts, but also um, he noted that we have an issue with like labor market mobility and a massive challenge in terms of over specifying both person and job descriptions. And actually what we need to start to focus on a lot more is this broader transferable skill set and retraining and, and really building yeah. the industry that can start to deliver stuff to tackle these emissions yeah. reductions. And, and I mean, on that, the, at the same talk I was at, we had Lord Callanan, who is um, one of the ministers for Bayes, he made this exact point. You know, it was interesting to hear around retrofit that he, he very quickly pointed out the number of jobs which were which were you know going to potentially be created. I, I think from memory it was about two hundred thousand. Um, but the, the point is, you know, these efforts mm-hmm. require skilled individuals. It required the labour, and that needs to be here, and it needs to yeah. be available, and and it needs to be it needs to grow yeah. over the over the coming years. So you cannot deliver these reductions. No, it does absolutely. But the last point I want to pick up on is accountability, because you mentioned it in relation to the EPCs. We heard a fantastic example from uh, Pittsburgh in the US around how um, how the uh, the city was making sure that they were being held to account by their citizens in this area and I thought it was fascinating and so not only were directors of different part of the of, of the authority um, they had to make sure that when they presented their budgets um, for the coming year that they were presented in an, an equitable manner so not equal but equitable so looking at how their spend profiles were going to improve equity across the city but more importantly that city budget every dollar spent are allocated against each of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And then once you sum up the total of the budget, you can see how many of the city dollars will directly impact different goals. And then they also embed a voluntary review that members of the public can see. So city taxpayers get a receipt. So once you pay your tax, you can type in um, your wages and your property value and you get a receipt that shows you line by line how much you pay for different services as well, which I thought was amazing. But are they then able to align that, the services, to the SDGs? Is, it, is this about having transparency that, let's say, your council bill is going towards this on transport, this on waste management, but actually, you know, were they then going to link that to what, how that was mapping into, say, emissions or biodiversity? Was that the link? Yeah, so I don't know if, if they link it at the citizen level. So, you know, for your own receipt, I don't know if your own receipt would link it to the SDGs, but certainly at the at the city level, you can see how much of the total money across all citizens is going to the different yeah. SDGs. Absolutely. Well, that's, I mean, that, and that's fantastic because, you know, I think maybe too often citizens, I, I'm kind of re- referring to myself here, <laughs> 
complain about this out of the other, but maybe we don't have the full picture. So actually that kind of information sometimes could be to the benefit of of these councils. Also might not if they're not doing enough right but then but then you hope that the it, it brings everybody up because there's this competition and we often hear about this leaderboard as well that i think has been recommended by various commentators between cities you know if you have this in the uk i'm referring to if you have this leaderboard of performance it starts to breed this this healthy competition between between towns and cities yeah absolutely um really fascinating and, and it just underpinned like showed the, the need for really good data and evidence to underpin all of this as well so really being yeah. quite proactive and of course i found you bumped into you at the the other event that we, we were yes. at which was the incentivizing it's another sort of sexy name in- <laughs> incentivizing timely investment in local energy infrastructure priorities i mean it's essentially how do we get the money into the right cities at the right time to do the right thing for net zero yeah and i'm not sure that the session really gave us an answer on that um the concept of time was really really fascinating and and um picked up on by keith anderson of scottish power which is that you know, when we look at what cities are doing, and, and this was obviously a very UK-centric uh, session, but when we look at what cities and local authorities and regions are doing, they're often moving at different paces to one another, and they tend to be moving at a faster pace to national government. And what that means is that they actually are calling for investment over different timescales. And while that might be okay for certain things, and perhaps it might even be helpful for certain things because it allows you to build up you know, supply chains or businesses in one area and then translate them to another, for other areas where you've got big investments that are needed that are more national level it can be challenging so that i thought that was a really interesting that that kind of aggregating up different actions and investments to make sure we're we're moving in the right direction um what i thought we you know we had representatives there uh, tracy brabin uh, mayor of west yorkshire also had steve rotherham um a similar role at liverpool you know they they would i in effect be banging the drum for this because you know they are they are with devolved uh, governments but they made the point that actually devolved governments are uniquely placed to deliver this action on behalf of central government. They have the agility to do this, but they also, they're integrated uh, enough in their local area that they know what needs to be done, where, and potentially by whom. Yes. You know, the question is, that I think, well, there was an interesting mm-hmm. point I think uh, Tracy was making. You know, they didn't want to have this beauty, which she referred to it, as a, mm-hmm. a beauty pageant yeah. to essentially win big pots of money every year. Just give us the power and we'll do the rest. Okay. The question is, will central government do that? Yeah, I have to say, it made me laugh thinking about, I think she was referring to the kind of five mayors across the the, uh, the north of the UK, and it made me have a little chuckle thinking of them all in a beauty pageant. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. what I'm still struggling with is if they are so important, if they are responsible or have influence over more than 80% of carbon emissions, why are we not devolving more powers to them? Why are we not supporting them to take those actions in a way that can actually let them act faster, in, which is what we need? In one word, politics, probably, <laughs> politics. But I think there's an interesting point. If, if central government is to cede power and, and by extension funding mm-hmm. to devolved administrations to do this, we're not necessarily talking about the devolved administrations like Scotland and Wales, but we're also not, mm-hmm. not talking about them. But we the, the mayoral regions, um, they're not only ceding power, they're also, and this might be a good thing for central government, they're ceding responsibility oh, for yeah. net zero. There may come a point in the future where uh, you know, central government are, are backs against the wall failing to maybe deliver on this, that or the other carbon budget. Um, maybe it might just 
might just suit to spread that responsibility around, especially if you need to get there quicker you know yeah. and deeper and in a more context specific manner because obviously the challenges that different areas face are all quite different from one another so the one other thing that i want to uh, point i want to make about about this session around the investments which was actually focused around zero carbon communities was every single panelist made reference to a just and inclusive transition and this is the first session i've been in where that has been mentioned by every panelist yeah. it was really great to see that in there to hear focus on investment that's not just about being green but also about being socially just and getting to know the communities and really supporting people across those communities with engaging but overcoming their specific challenges yeah. I'm fantastic I completely agree uh, and as we speak somebody's just got a ladder out and put it above our heads uh, fixing something or other so uh, which is not only symbolic uh, for bad luck but it also also might just uh, knock us on the head so I think at that point maybe we should pause yep I'm kind of got that cock day 12 fug. Not quite sure where I am or where I'm going, but... <laughs> I think it's being like out of the sunlight for so long. You forget, is it daytime still? Yeah, is it nighttime? I, Who knows? I actually don't know what the weather is outside. It could be doing anything. Okay, right. Well, on that note, we better, we better run off before we get squished. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. See you later, Matt. That's me for today. I'm done. Bushwhacked. Um, I'm going to hop on the train and get home. And then cop will, cop will end shortly. Be sad to see it go. On the other hand, I'm not sure I could do a third week. I haven't got the stamina. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Bye bye. Produced by the Spoken Media.